I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Welcome to Play Me and the conclusion of Boy in the Moon by Emile Scherer, adapted from the best-selling memoir by Ian Brown. In part two of the play, the cracks in Ian Brown and his wife's marriage are starting to show from the strain of raising their son, Walker, born with a rare genetic disorder. The demands of caring for their disabled son and older daughter, the growing financial burden, and the frustration with their inability to communicate with Walker are pushing them to make a difficult decision. This is the conclusion of Boy and the Moon by Emile Scherer, based on the book by Ian Brown. We enroll Walker in Play and Learn, a daycare program for normal and disabled children. The wheels on the bus go round and round, round and round, round and round. The wheels on the bus go round and round, all through the town. From Walker's first Play and Learn report card. Walker enjoys exploring objects by manipulating them. He turns objects through his fingers as he looks at them and has also begun to bang objects together. To my surprise, Walker slowly became bolder, more outgoing. The staff, all women, dedicated teachers of the disabled, optimists who saw hope in everything. Typically, Walker produces open vowels and consonant vowel combinations. Although he will not initiate an interaction, he does enjoy having his peers around and When a peer is holding his hand, he seems to be content. It was that last line that crushed me. He needs someone to moor him. We learned he was improving at math. (laughs) (laughs) Math! (laughs) And improving. (laughs) Oh, we laughed like hell. Uh, then we kissed him and said, Well, well done, Walkie. Walkie. Two, two and two, two is, four. is four. What I couldn't tell is what the routines meant to him. Did he know he was painting when the teacher was guiding his hand? He had a friend, Jeremy, but did he know what a friend was? As Walker grew older, we developed a private language of tongue clicks that only he and I speak. All we ever seem to say is, hello, it's me. I'm clicking to you and only you because only you and I speak click. To which he replies, I think. Yes, 
Hi, I see you there, and I am clicking back. I like it that we speak our private language. In fact, I find it hilarious. The clicks for me? I don't think they mean anything specific, but I do think Walker enjoys being clicked back to. Even though he's not saying something specific, it's a response. Ian thinks Walker hears actual meanings. He thinks it's funny. I think he likes to hear it because it's a funny sound. <laughs> One of my favorite memories was when we took Walker to the AGO. And he was just in the phase when he was first starting to click. And there's these cavernous rooms and his clicking just echoed through the whole place and he was loving it. He was loving that he was clicking and it was echoing and he was just in a really good mood. I know we were driving some of the people at the museum crazy. Ian was more acutely aware of that than I. We can't let him do that. He's driving people crazy. He loves driving people crazy. He's a witch. And at that point I was like, he's having fun. I don't care if they're irritated. I don't care. I didn't always feel that way, but that day I did. Our friends offer to take him, to give us a weekend away. We do this twice in 12 years. I'm a wasp, an English wasp. You do not ask for help. Each time it was a different couple, our closest friends, a single night each time. They volunteer many times before we agree. Caring for Walker is a complicated thing to ask somebody to do, after all. What with all the tubes and feedings and drugs and the incessant hitting and crying. They wear one look on their faces when we drop Walker off. Attentive, but eager. And another look, 36 hours later, when we pick him up. The stunned gaze of passengers on a plane that crash lands safely and miraculously. In a pinch, we try babysitters when Olga was away or unavailable or on New Year's Eve or the big holidays. We'd hire a sitter from agencies that specialize in looking after disabled children. They were, they were first-rate caregivers, mostly unflappable. But it felt a bit like dropping your kid off with a hired invertebrate. I mean, who's available to babysit on New Year's Eve? Several were on the eccentric side. A pathologically shy, limping giantess would arrive at the door, and I would pretend it was the most normal thing on earth to hand over our disabled son... And often our daughter... ...to a stranger for six hours. Oh, hello, one eye. I'm Ian. How are you? Nice to see you. Come on in. Uh, this is Walker. Can you say hi, Walker? Of course, I knew Walker couldn't say hi, but what was I supposed to say? Here, you two seem well-matched, so I said the only thing I could. Uh, let me show you his room. Here is his food Playroom. and his clothes. Bad. Um, he gets this syringe at this uh, time, this, and then yes. four cc's of this at this time, and then Then just, uh, uh, two cans uh, of uh, this formula, formula every four hours. Yeah. Which which you administer, like, um, the, through this... Just, uh, the, you attach um, this yes, bit here. Um, it, all this it's, um, nozzle. You just have to... Uh, Haley, Haley knows what, knows to, what do. to do. I was four. It felt a bit like trying to explain the plumbing of a large, complicated house in five minutes before you flew out the door. And we wanted to fly out the door. We're at a Christmas party, an office party. I remember sitting in this bar watching my wife briefly emerge from the cocoon of her endless obligations. She is huddled at the bar beside a man I know, an old friend of ours, and she is laughing out loud. She's really having a good time, I can see that. I haven't seen my wife laugh like that in my company. 
I know how to make her laugh. I can make her laugh in ways that other people can't, as husbands and wives can, but not like that. All out, full on, in a long time. They look intimate. Their shoulders are touching. Their drink is the same, vodka with tonic. I know he's very fond of her. What the hell is going on over there? I remember thinking. And I know her. I've seen her sobbing unexpectedly at night. I've seen her come downstairs and say, Can you go up and take him? I've seen her at the bottom of the darkness. I thought, how can I go and stop her from having a good time? How can I do that? I can't do that. That's not fair. I forgive her the dark fear she has felt on so many occasions. Her struggle to love her broken boy. I was always willing to step in and help her through that black self-hatred. In that way, sometimes the boy makes us generous, too. You have no idea how much pleasure a person can offer another with the words. That's okay. I'll take him to the doctor. I remember this day. Everything fell apart. The dishwasher broke. The washing machine broke. I was making a left-hand turn in the middle of a busy intersection, and the car died. I didn't care. It didn't matter because those were stupid problems. Those were fixable problems. One of my favorite photographs of Walker shows him sitting in my lap in a reclining lawn chair beside a still lake. I am reading a newspaper, frowning. Walker's leaning back against my chest, laughing like mad. We were both happy then. From June 2001 to the spring of 2003, every entry in Dr. Saunders' records mentions Walker's unhappiness, his irritability. 72 hours, aggressive behavior. Unhappy crying for five days. Screaming all day needs to be held. Mother tearful. At a certain point, I was having so many headaches from holding back crying, I just finally said to myself, people laugh out loud, I'm just going to cry. I learned how to talk through crying. One therapist tells us the way to stop a kid like this hitting himself is with food and toys. Walker doesn't care about any of that stuff. They don't know anything. I see that now. Nobody has been helping us because no one can. They don't know anything. Normally, Johanna was relieved when Walker dropped off to sleep, but one night she came downstairs from putting him to bed, her arms wrapped around herself, sobbing. He's gone. I can't find him anymore. Oh, my little boy is gone. Oh, where is he gone? There was chloral hydrate. There were pills. There was the car, places to 
drive the car off of, lakes to walk out into. Can you imagine the magnitude of our failure? We failed to teach Walker to speak, to sleep, to eat, to pee, or even to look at us. Strained by sleeplessness and ashamed of our failure with the boy, I asked myself if it might not be the braver thing to take my own life and to take Walker with me. We'll be right back. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. At our lowest point, we would do anything to feel better. I remember I was at my chiropractor, Anita's, and at the end of the session, she said, I have this idea about Walker. It's pretty woo-woo. She said, I wonder if you would take him to a shaman, a native shaman. And I was just so strung out on Walker, I said, sure. So two weeks later, we go to this native healing center in, in, in a nondescript building. And I'm worried that Walker is going to, I don't know, wreck the shaman's karma by freaking out. But as soon as we walk in, he becomes completely calm. The shaman uh, was sitting on a blanket in the middle of this basement floor and there was an interpreter sitting next to her and he had to give her some money or some tobacco as an offering so I gave her 50 bucks and I, and I put a package of cigarettes on the blanket and the shaman lights a pipe she lights some sage and she calls to the east wind. Then she calls to all the other winds. And then she calls for Walker. And by now there's a lot of smoke in the room and I have a crashing headache. And the shaman speaks and the interpreter says, The gate appears. I see a tree. It is old and new. Parts of it are dead and parts are alive. And there's a light on the tree, and it is full of singing birds. And on the other side of the gate is a well. I see a well so deep you can barely see the water. I see a lot of elders. And the elders have come to see Walker. Maybe they know him. Maybe, maybe he is one of them. The shaman can't tell, but, but they seem to know him anyway. And after the ceremony, the interpreter says, The tree is Walker's life. 
and the singing birds are all of us. And the well is Walker's quest. And Walker's quest, the purpose of his life, is to see if he can see his reflection in the water at the bottom of the well. This is the path that he has chosen for himself, to see if he can see his reflection. He may or may not, but this is his quest. And then the interpreter asks if I have any specific questions for the shaman. And I say, yes. Why does Walker hit himself? He's trying to find the shape of his reflection in the well. That was a turning point for me. There was just no judgment or fear. It was just very accepting. Instead of trying to fix Walker or make him better or diagnose him or see what was causing his state, it was just who and what he is. It isn't a triumph or a tragedy. It just is. To find his shape in the reflection at the bottom of a well. I got a car to the airport, I got a plane to France, I got another car and drove and drove to a tiny stone cottage to find a tall, shy, unassuming man in a pale blue sweater. I ask him, how can I sustain my belief that all the effort I'm making with Walker means anything? He tells me a story about the first person to die in a large home, an assistant named Francois. One of the residents kisses Francois on his way out. Oh, shit, he's cold. And on his way out says, everybody's going to be so surprised I kissed a dead person. He looks at me, shrugs his shoulders. What is happening? To my relief, I wasn't supposed to answer. He was going to tell me. My belief is that he is kissing his own handicap. So accepting people with disabilities is some way of accepting one's own death. This is Jean Vanier, the founder of L'Arche, a global movement where people like Walker are treated as equals. As a young man, Vanier drops everything, moves into a tiny stone cottage in Trolly Broye with two intellectually disabled middle-aged men. No indoor plumbing, no electricity. Vanier has no training to speak of. What was he thinking? I thought it might be fun. I find myself telling him that when I feel out of sorts, when nothing works, I feel better if I give Walker a bath. It makes him feel better too, I think. You see, you are bathing your own handicap. It's a point of view I'd never encountered before. I can say that for it. What is it that makes you open your heart to someone else? A weak person. Someone who says, I need your help. We're in a society where we have to know what to do all the time. But if we move instead from the place of our weakness, what happens? We say to others, I need your help. And so we create community. I tell them about our private language of tongue clicks. You see, 
You're not doing something for him, you're just with him. He's clicking, and you're clicking, and I call that communion. Somewhere in Larsh, there is the desire to be a symbol, a symbol that another vision is possible. A community of the disabled as a model for how the world might coexist more effectively. I, I have to say, that struck me as a radical idea, even a gorgeous one. It also struck me as hopelessly unrealistic. I ducked out of that cramped stone cottage in Trolley. I walked down the street, up a lane, across a field. I couldn't tell if I was enthralled or defeated. Vanier says these things. Sometimes they make sense to me. Sometimes they seem the exclusive thoughts of a man with a deep religious faith. I do not share. As Vanier sees it, the disabled are a sign of God, that he has sent the foolish to confound the strong. So Walker's not a weak link, but an especially strong one. I wish I could believe in Vanier's God, but the truth is I do not see the face of the Almighty in Walker. Look, I want to believe. Every ounce of me knows my odd little boy can teach everyone something about themselves. Whether that will ever happen is another story. Yeah. Uh, the, the whole disability as a gift from God thing. I just have tremendous resentment of people who say things like that. That just, um, yeah, just enrages me. Because I think, you know, right, his whole life is miserable so that my life can be enriched. I just think it's bullshit. You know, I mean... If that's what people need to tell themselves, that's, that's fine. Just don't tell me that. I don't know what Walker's value is to the world, but I'm not sure that I agree that his lasting value is to have touched people. That his whole life has to be this fucking Gandhi thing. I don't think his life should only have value because he makes other people feel more contented with their lives. I think his life should have a value of its own. Among Olga, ourselves, respite care, ad hoc programs, the odd agency, school, and luck, we managed to survive 10 years. Perhaps you can understand why I had begun to look for a way out, for a place for Walker to live outside of our home. I didn't tell Johanna. Eventually, I tentatively raised the subject of Walker moving into a home. Neither of us can face the possibility. I can't. I can't. The emotion is palpable. The struggle I can see in you and the pain you carry around. The roof is coming in. Minda Latowski, a caseworker on Walker's special needs team. Physically, you're shadows of yourselves. You're two people who love your child, who are trying to function as well as you can, who are working and have another child as well. 
Think about in future terms. Should Haley suffer as well? Minda found a home for him. The thought of Walker living in a place with big giant adults this scares the shit out of me. Who wants to admit you've had a child and you can't raise him? I'm a wreck. I feel as if the shape he gives my life, this deep fate he's handed me is melting away. And for what? For the sake of my own comfort? Because there's no such thing as a perfect solution? It'll be months before you realize you can put your coffee down safe from flinging by Walker, but by then, he will be back at your place often. I find it horrible to take him back to his group home. He hates the driving him home drive. Even now, the departures feel like small deaths, as if the sun is slowly dimming. It's just a terrible drive. Every time. It's first rate, as assisted living homes go. Well organized, well staffed, the 24-hour care walker needs. Clean. Clean is important. He lives there with seven other disabled children. I know his bedroom by heart. Blue-green walls, blonde wood chest of drawers, stickers of soccer balls on the wall, NASCAR bed sheets. The closet, military in its order, bins labeled shirts, pants, underpants, spare arm tubes. Three of them share the room. Marcus? Deaf, delayed, anxious, but lively. Yusuf? Tall, skinny, delayed, quiet, sweet. sweet. And Walker, the most intellectually delayed of the three. Picture of Haley on his wall, picture of Olga, picture of his ma picture of me, picture of a snowman, and a pair of boxing gloves traced out of purple paper. A boy who boxes his own ears turned into a picture. He's always been that, a boxer, a tough guy. He may be small, but he's rugged and he has a bottomless capacity for pain. Katie, one of the women who works with Walker, finally devised a way to stop him from hitting himself. Empty Pringle cans reinforced with tongue depressors and electrician's tape. The first day we took him up to his new home, it's about uh, 40 minutes away by car. I remember coming back afterwards, driving in the car. Haley, Olga, Johanna, me, I'm driving. Nobody talking, nobody saying anything, but everybody intensely aware. You've just given up your child. Your child who needs you. And we get back to our house and I keep thinking, he spends a lot of time downstairs with Olga. They have a big playroom down there. He loves the basement. There's all this stuff that he can look into, scrabble around in, and I keep thinking he's down there, he's down there. He's, he's in a corner looking for treasure, our little pirate boy. It's hard to find. And then I realize there's nothing down there now. That was the most. I still think if I was any kind of mother, he would still be at home. 
mother's guilt. It's part of their body. Well, it's not even guilt. It's um... uh, sadness. The sadness of the mother. I just knew that if he left, um, this is going to sound really dramatic. If he left, I wouldn't be his mother anymore. I felt like I was handing him off like he's not mine anymore. A sin against nature. I don't know about a sin against nature, just, um, just a decision with a profound impact for him and me and our relationship. Um, a turning point and no turning back. I picked me over him. You picked you over him. Yes, oh, that's the truth. See, I don't think that. I, I think no. that's the romantic. I did this equation, and no it. one's going to win. So who's going to lose the least is what it was. And Walker's. In so well, many ways, it's easier Walker for seemed him to be able to, there, to live where he's as, not the least able person. Where there's there's a rhythm to the day that is his rhythm. Where where we are always trying to fit him into our rhythm. Walker seemed to be able to live as Walker in many places. So. I went with that. I don't think it's the wrong decision. As long as someone loves him every day, I don't care who it is. Now he's their boy. Will and... Will, Trish. Trish and Tina. Jermaine, just as he is my boy and Johanna's boy and Olga's boy. And my brother. He belongs more and more to all of us because he is the kind of boy that no one person can manage alone. That is the price and the marvel of his life. One question. Do you understand why you don't live here anymore? Do you like your group home? Do you like your life? Does he wonder where we are? Does he wake up in the middle of the night and miss us? Even when he's gone, he's here. He has a knack for worming his way into my brain the moment I sit down to write a letter or start to read a book, and the moment I hear him, I'm hijacked. His aura turns up everywhere, unexpectedly. In the lyrics of a Neil Young song at the gym, Without Walker in the house all the time, soaking up her every moment, Johanna starts writing more again, exercising. She takes compulsively to uh, crosswords, Sudoku, a, a massive 2,000-piece jigsaw of Munch's The Scream. It takes a while to get to the point where, you know, you're each in your own trench. Um, and so it takes a while before you can come out of them again. So it wasn't like immediately we rediscovered our happiness from one another, but we did fight a lot less right off the bat. There was a lot more time, a lot more relaxed time. For a year before we moved out, I kept going to the doctor saying, I've got this pain in my stomach. You have no pain in your stomach. No, 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 I can actually feel the pain. There's nothing there. And I was scoped left, right, center, and nothing. And then as soon as Walker moved away and was happy, the pain went away. I hope he dies before I do. I do. I just want to... I just want to see the end of his story. I just want to be there for the whole thing with him. 
The thought that I can't stand is the thought of me dying and him still being out there because I don't know how it's going to be for him. I just want to be there for the whole ride with him. I don't know what that is. Love? Concern? Guilt? All of it. I don't want him to die tomorrow or anytime soon, but I want to hold him when he dies. One of my secret death fantasies was to pack Walker into a baby backpack and take him high up into the mountains of Western Canada in winter, one of my favorite places on earth, and lie down in a snowbank and end it there, quietly. I imagine the venture in complete detail, how I will pick a moment when Johanna is at a movie and Haley is at school, how I will get him out of the house and to the airport with all of his gear and the ski equipment. Unfortunately, that alone derails my death fantasy. If I can get through that fucking nightmare, the airport with Walker and skis, I can survive anything. There's no need to kill myself. These days, I have another fantasy. In this fantasy, Walker lives in a village owned and inhabited by the disabled on their schedule, at their pace. And there's a ring of cabins around the community so the able-bodied can go and stay there for a few weeks at a time. And all they have to do is have breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day in the community. And once a week, they have to give someone like Walker a bath. I think three weeks in that community would change the way we approach the world. When I see the face of my boy, I see what is human and lovely and flawed at once. Walker is no angel, and neither am I. I can't bear to watch him bash himself every day, but I can try to understand why he does it. The more I struggle to face my limitations as a father, the less I want him to be different. Not just because we have a physical bond, a big, simple thing. Not just because he's taught me the difference between a real problem and a mere complaint. Not just because he makes me appreciate time, and Haley, and my wife, and friends, and all the sweetness that one day ebbs away. I have begun simply to love him as he is, because I have discovered that I can that we can be who we are, weary dad and broken boy, without alteration or apology, in the here and now. One question. Do you love us? 
Do you, do you know, know that, that we, we love, love you? you? <laughs> Walker. Dancing in the living room with Haley, who is brilliant and tall and gorgeous and smart. She is a great dancer. And Walker is over the moon. <laughs> he is just so gone with happiness. When he opens his eyes and he observes, pay attention to that. His experience of Haley's physical grace, his sudden astonishment at his tall sister's beauty. Okay, okay. <laughs> when uh, Walker is happy, he's happy in a way that you overcome your initial feeling of what a kid should be or how a kid should look. His happiness is so infectious and so communicated that it, <laughs> that it does. It makes you realize that most of the time we have a very... A very narrow definition of what's okay, or what's acceptable, or what's good, or what's happy. And Walker's made us see how many of the rules that we live by are simply made up. It is nearly impossible to take a good photograph of Walker. The trick is to wait for at least three things to happen at once. A moment when he's calm and his body is relaxed. A moment when he's not hitting himself. A moment when he's alert. Yeah, those, those moments don't happen often. And when one does, and you happen to have a camera on hand, and you manage to grab a photo before the moment evaporates, then maybe you get a picture like this. Our real treasures. Proof of the walker we're convinced is there. That was the conclusion of Boy and the Moon by Emile Scherer, based on the book by Ian Brown. The play featured David Storch, Lisa Repo-Martel, and Kelly McNamee. The adaptation of The Boy on the Moon was commissioned by the Belfry Theatre and the Great Canadian Theatre Company. It was developed and premiered at the Great Canadian Theatre Company with support from the Charles Dolphin Tribute Fund and revised for a second production with the support of Crow's Theatre. The original theatrical production was directed by Chris Abram. This episode's sound design and edit is by Chris Tolley. It also featured some original music and sound design from the stage version by Thomas Ryder Payne. And finally, if you haven't already, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast to help us get the word out to more listeners. And also, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show. You can email us at playme at cbc.ca or follow us on Twitter at expecttheatre or Instagram at playmepodcast. Special thanks to our CBC producers, Fabiola Melendez-Carletti, Cecil Fernandez, and Tanya Springer. The executive producer of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani. The senior director of audio innovation is Leslie Merklinger. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is produced by Expect Theatre in partnership with CBC Podcasts. For more information on our plays and artists, please visit playmepodcast.com.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.